This is Rumble, and this is Michael Moore. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, taking a couple days off here, and uh, we're back. Welcome. I uh, hope everybody uh, has had a, a good weekend and a couple days here. Um, it uh, Sadly, the coronavirus is on the rise again, and more than half the country did not want to see this happen. We're not even out of phase one yet, and here we are uh, with this uh, predicament. Um, so we need to get our wrap our heads around this and uh, and deal with what we know we have to deal with here a total lack of leadership and uh, uh, but you know look we're smarter than all of this so come on um, we'll I'll do something we'll talk about it later this week but just sorry to see that happening and uh, uh, happy to see that Trump not only got his comeuppance in Tulsa but uh, I, I just can I just give a shout out to Trump supporters who didn't show up? Cause I know you wanted to show up and, and, and you had to weigh it. You had to weigh, do I go to racist rally with douchebag president and maybe possibly ending up dead? Or do I stay home and watch match game? My hat is off to all clearly the majority of you in Oklahoma or places close to Tulsa, you decided that it was more important to live than to be there cheering on this person who is destroying our country. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for putting yourself and your family first. Keep doing that in other ways, and um, we'll, we'll all be better off. Um, I've got a great guest here today, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, before we get going, I, I've got a new underwriter for Rumble here. It's called Gabby. I want to tell you what Gabby is. And first of all, I want to thank them for supporting Rumble and supporting my voice, being able to to bring the information and the uh, opinions and thoughts and whatever from myself and my guests to a, a very large audience now. We're, we're just about ready to pass the, the 12 million mark. 12 million of you uh, downloaded this since we began four months ago. So uh, thank you for that. But let me tell you about Gabby. You, you've heard of, you know, these travel sites like uh, Expedia, Travelocity, uh, Kayak. Uh, you, we, all, we all use them, right? We go there because it doesn't cost us anything. And you want to take a trip somewhere, back in the days when we took trips, uh, we'll take them again. Don't hang in there. But you go there because they do the work for you of finding you immediately like what's the best flight to wherever and what's the best price. And everybody who's used this has saved a ton of money flying. Well, you know, I've been thinking for some time, somebody's got to come along with other ways to, to use apps to do similar comparison shopping for us so we can save some money. And, and this is what Gabby is. Gabby has set up a system where they will be your insurance broker. They will find you the best policy and the at the least expensive rate. They don't charge you a thing for it. They don't get a commission. There's no fees. There's nothing, no strings. Basically, you give them your ins insurance account, uh, give them the number. They'll look it up. Within two minutes, they will have, if it's available, a better price or a better deal than the one you have. Or if you've got the best deal, they'll tell you that. This is, this is such a great idea. Now we're talking about car insurance and, and homeowners insurance. And look, we're living in a time right now, it's tough for a lot of people. 
Everybody's looking for a way to, to cut back, cut out, save money. Well, uh, what better place to start with than insurance? Well, Gabby will find the best one and the cheapest one for you, and they'll do it in a matter of two minutes, and they will charge you nothing. Oh, and here's the difference between them and those travel sites like Expedia and Kayak. They will not sell any of your information uh, to anybody else. It all stays with Gabby. It all stays confidential with them. Uh, so no more, you know, no spam, no robocalls, whatever. And so here's here's how successful Gabby has been. Uh, the average amount that they save the person that goes to the app, types in their insurance information, average amount that they save $825. They do an apples to apples comparison between, you know, your coverage that you've got now. And they go through the 40 top insurance providers in this country. They just go right through it in a matter of two, two minutes and you've got the answer. So here's, here's what you do. It's, it's pretty easy. All you got to do uh, right now is you just go to uh, Gabby. By the way, let me spell out Gabby for you. It's G-A-B-I. G-A-B-I. Easy. Type in Gabby.com slash Rumble, our podcast. All right. Got that? So once again, it's Gabby, G-A-B-I dot com slash Rumble. Boom. Thank you. Thank you to the people at Gabby for supporting uh, this podcast and, and being our new underwriter. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so pleasant about that place. Even your emotions have an echo in so much space. So we have with us today uh, Dr. Stephen Reisner, and uh, Steve uh, is a psychologist and psychoanalyst. He uh, graduated from uh, Princeton uh, and uh, got his uh, PhD in um, psychology at um, Columbia University, taught at Columbia, taught at NYU, and uh, also um, uh, was part of the uh, International Trauma Studies uh, Program at NYU. Um, Steven Reisner is also, uh, amongst those of us who are familiar and, uh, worked for years fighting the Bush administration on not just the Iraq war, but also the, the torture programs, uh, instituted by, um, uh, Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and the others. And, uh, when it was revealed to the public that the uh, Bush administration was using torture uh, and using psychologists, hiring psychologists and psychiatrists to commit acts of torture on people who were being detained, not people who have been charged or tried, convicted or whatever, um, people that were being, uh, that were picked up and detained, whether it was Guantanamo or other black sites. 
and and so um, Steve and uh, some friends of his in the psychology community decided to fight the Bush administration and um, for a number of years to stop the torture using psychological torture. And um, uh, Steve also, he ran actually for the presidency of the American Psychology Association a, a number of times um, in order to change the policy. Um, he did not become president of the APA, but he did. He and his cohorts did get the, the, the Defense Department to stop uh, the use of torture um, once the Obama administration uh, was in office and um, in the uh, the Pentagon and I don't know who else, Homeland Security, the intelligence community basically had to um, make a public declaration that they would no longer uh, do this. And so thanks to Steve, that piece of our torturing became a reality. And that's uh, when I first heard of Stephen Reisner and became uh, very familiar with him and his work. And, and, uh, uh, and he started working with us on our films. And uh, on the last film, Fahrenheit 11.9, was a co-producer. Um, so I have a great admiration uh, for him, for the political work, that he has done and for the work in the psychology community uh, and the psychoanalytic community. And so I decided to have him uh, on uh, our show uh, here today, our, our episode of Rumble, to talk about his new podcast that uh, he started uh, a couple months ago. And uh, his podcast is called Madness. Uh, and I, I believe the tagline is, uh, a podcast on the intersection uh, where psychology and politics meet. And I just thought that was such a great idea to do that, to, to take his, his sort of brilliant psychological work and um, combine it with his brilliant political work into a podcast. And I'll tell you more about the, we're going to talk about the podcast uh, here and I'll tell you more about it and where, where you can find it and how you can link to it right on my podcast site here. Uh, because his most recent episode, uh, it's only episode six, but it, the others were great. This one blew my mind. And I said, it's, it's too long. We have got to, I've got to have you on my podcast and we've got to talk about that. And so here he is uh, straight from a small village in France. Uh, how many people, Steve, are in this village that you're in? Uh, we have a population of about 620 630. Oh. oh, I didn't know it was that large. So it was, <laughs> so, but, um, so thank you, first of all, for being on Rumble. Uh, and thank you for all the, all the great work uh, that you've done. It, it's such a pleasure to be on Rumble. I think that Rumble has changed podcasting in a, in a rather dramatic way. Um, it's, you're there on every important topic in, in a timely way. And then, for the emergency topics, you're there uh, in in an immediate way, and it it, it it's been it's been extraordinary to, to watch this this develop. Um, so thank you for having well, me on. 
Thank you for saying that. It's very kind. Explain to people what the, what the concept is here, because I, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and uh, I don't, there isn't anything like this. So just explain madness uh, to, to the people listening. Okay. So the tagline is, is, it's madness where psychology and capitalism collide. And right. Capital, not politics. Not capitalism. politics. Capital. Right, right. Where, and that, where, okay, where psychology and capitalism collide. Yes. Right. And the reason for that is, I mean, I'm playing on the concept of madness and to include anger, to include the idea that generally for the past, I would say, 40 years, psychology and capitalism have not been colliding the way they should. In fact, cap- uh, psychology has kind of aligned with capitalism, and psychology has been uh, deciding what is normal and what are deviations from the norm, and our funding coming from insurance companies uh, is determined by uh, diagnoses, and more and more psychology has folded itself under under capitalism um, uh, instead of what it started out being and what it what everybody goes into psychology to to try to accomplish, which is actually improving the lives and dignity of of human beings and making their lives richer and more courageous and more loving. And, and so, you're, and, you're, and you're saying that that has been lost somewhat in in that and that the psychology now of the 21st century is being used. Give an example or two of this in terms of, of well, to help prop up capitalism. Well, if you, let's say you're a worker and you're overworked and you're underpaid and you're experiencing anxiety and you see a psychologist, the psychologist now, it, first of all, if you're, therapy is paid for by insurance, the psychologist has to give you a diagnosis. And usually that diagnosis would be anxiety. And then the psychologist in many places has to consult with a psychiatrist and begin to think about how to help you reduce your anxiety through medication, through meditation, uh, through various forms of self-care. And at no point would the psychologist say, you know, maybe your anxiety is there for a very good reason. And maybe you should think about your political position and your power position within where you work. And maybe you need to be thinking about uh, organizing or joining a union or, you know, or whatever it takes to see yourself as part of a social system that you're embedded in, but but that, and that wants you to be a better worker where your goal should be to be a, to lead a richer life. And so, th- so what you're saying is, is that, that anxiety is not necessarily a bad thing. It may be a, uh, uh, an important, uh, canary in the coal mine sort of thing where it's, it's there to kind of warn you, just like if you're hungry, your body says, please feed me, or you're thirsty, please give me a drink of water. Exactly. So yeah. anxiety, brain, yeah, yes. Anxiety could be called fear. Depression should be called sadness. Um, you, I mean, if we use real language for these things, people stop feeling like they've got a pathology that they have to buy something to take care of. So that's just a little example. And so what's often considered madness to me is social 
is a social protest, a, a small one, but it can often be seen as a perhaps a social protest, a protest of your role in the family. Um, and so I am trying to use my podcast to uh, liberate madness. Liberate it in the sense that uh, that madness can be our friend or? That madness can be our friend. That madness can be a source of, of, of energy to promote social change, to promote uh, uh, political awareness, and to, uh, and to rethink basic values. What about the madness that, say, comes from the White House? When we think of that, when we use that word, with with madness um, that we're having to deal with, and and I want to talk a little bit about this particular episode of yours, where you you present an analysis, not not a psychoanalysis, but an analysis of, well, I guess it is of Trump, um, in a way I'd never heard it described before. Trying to understand, you know, his uh, behavior, but uh, yeah. um, maybe we should just jump into that right now because I, this. You um, you explain that that the all of us are fond of saying, especially us civilians, uh, that uh, he's a narcissist, uh, he's a sociopath, et cetera, et cetera. But you take a different approach uh, to this, and also you don't you think it's too easy for, especially for for shrinks who have been trying to psychoanalyze Trump from afar. Uh, to just say that there's a mental illness involved here, and that perhaps, perhaps it's not it's not quite right, and that's not quite how we should look at this, and that we need to possibly redefine um, how we are dealing with Trump's behavior, what we would call psychotic behavior, and um, and in this podcast, actually, you you give a definition of, of psychotic that is very kind and generous, like it's not you know. It's not like you are, you explain how, like, a, if you're born with a psychosis, um, you're a child, you're on the playground, um, the other kids call you crazy, um, you are bullied, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so, but in fact, sometimes it's the crazy kids that grow up to be the geniuses. And the only way they're able really to be geniuses, especially as a, an adult, is that they've allowed their crazy to, to run free. Um, and thus, some of our great art, our great uh, poetry, movies, science, um, technology, the, the genius things that have been invented in the last you know 50 years or whatever, have come from what, if they ever got diagnosed – sent or sent to some office uh, and put on medication. We may never have had some of the great, great music of all time that has come from, from that. So I've just kind of opened the door here to this, uh, but I would love for you uh, to uh, in that second part of this episode of, of madness mm -hmm. uh, that you, where you get into this and you, and you, and then you relate it to how we look at Trump. I would, I just like to turn the microphone over to you. Um, okay. here for a few minutes to explain this because I just had never heard anybody organize some thinking about Trump in this sort of way 
and uh, it's all yours. Okay. So most of the time, as you said, people talk about Trump and they, they diagnose him as a, as a narcissist or as a sociopath. And so narcissism and sociopathy are considered, you know, as mental illnesses. And therefore, we have to use uh, whatever the amendment is to take Trump out of office because he's sick, he needs a psychiatrist, he's unfit for office. My view is that it that's part of the entire problem of the capitalism of psychology, of using some deviation from the norm to describe a pathology. And also, it's flat out uh, wrong to think in 20th, 21st century America that narcissism and sociopathy are illnesses. In 21st century America, narcissism and sociopathy are strategies, and they're very successful strategies, especially in business and politics and uh, and entertainment, the areas that Trump excels in. So my argument is that Trump actually, that his narcissism and sociopathy are easy for us to talk about because we can see it as some invasion from outside and hope that we can just get rid of it. But in fact, Trump is such, he is such a representative of the, uh, the corporatocracy illness that runs America, he just doesn't hide it. But that's, but, but I make another case. And I say that we focus on that because we, it's easier than focusing on what is really going on in Trump's psychology and the structure of his mind. And I, this is where I talk about uh, psychotic thinking. And again, I'm not talking about psychotic thinking as if it's a mental illness, because in fact, it's, it's a way that the mind is organized for better or for worse. And so psychotic thinking really is a difficulty in automatically holding on to social structures. That people who have that kind of thinking, they, they, they just don't automatically get what people mean by social norms. And uh, they don't, of, of, often they don't, get metaphors so well, and they can be very concrete, or they can be very loose, because the structures don't hold. Now, what happens when the structures don't hold uh, are a couple of things. First of all, they sometimes they look for external structures, but because they, they are not beholden to rigid structures, they can be extraordinary, extraordinarily creative. So musicians use musical structure but because their mind thinks so clearly, they can rely on the form of the musical structure and at the same time be unbelievably creative when they themselves break the form and then come back to the form. And our best music is, with, is often by people whose mind has got this uh, particular character. Um, and in the podcast, I use uh, Bob Dylan as an example. I think that Bob Dylan's lyrics you know, are so fluid and so powerful and so poetic and so unusual. And I think that his is an example of this kind of, of, of freedom, of creative freedom. Um, and I think that Trump suffers from the same kind of fluidity. So I, 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 when he uh, talk, talks about uh, ultraviolet light 
being placed inside the body um, to, you know, blow away or disinfect the coronavirus, he's actually thinking outside the box. He's being creative in terms of thinking about ultraviolet light. And, you know, most of us know that it's possible to thread light and a camera through the body. And he was thinking maybe we could get a super ultraviolet light and put it in the lungs. People said, you know, and he, but he, he gets overly concrete at the same time because, you know, he has to make up for the fluidity. So he'll say a cleaning, a disinfectant, um, you know, he'll use like silly, uh, concretized ways of describing what is actually part of his sort of creative thought process. And everybody went nuts and thought he was talking about drinking bleach, but he was not. So, but this is only half of Trump's uh, psychological character. And that part wouldn't be scary or terrifying. We could pay attention to it and just think it was kind of interesting, except for what Trump does with it, which is this other part of Trump's character. And that is unbridled, extreme, and vicious cruelty. And Trump has a natural uh, load. I mean, everybody has got a distribution of aggression and love. Trump has an extraordinary amount of, of aggression and uh, turned cruel. And so when... So he uses his, his uh, free thinking to be very creative, but at the same time, he will turn on a dime when he feels ridiculed or when people challenge him, and he will use this other character trait of his, which is destructive cruelty, and he will take no prisoners, and he will use any power that he has available to him to destroy and to ensure his position. And so what we see is a creative genius at cruelty and uh, aggression um, who like, and this is the point I make in the podcast, this is a, th- these two traits, uh, psychotic thought processing and vicious cruelty, um, that you see in cult leaders, in dictators. You see that combination because people are terrified of them and just want to pacify them. And yet they're incredibly charismatic because they're very smart. And so people get caught up in being afraid to, uh, to go against them. And that's what we have in the Republican Party. And he has, he has collected power and he has b- used his unbridled viciousness to, to destroy anybody who stands against him. And uh, he... And therefore, people love to jump on the bandwagon also because his politics are simply a mobilization of hatred in the interest of his own personal profit. Mm. So let me see if I understand this. So, so the kind of crazy that a, uh, a Steve Wozniak or Steve Jobs or Bob Dylan mm-hmm. or an Albert Einstein would have, they are somehow able to channel that. That when I say crazy, I mean because they think outside the box that everybody else is in. They're out there inventing, creating. Uh, in Dylan's case, putting words together that, that 
if you read them as lyrics, make seem to make no sense. And yet, and yet they do. Whereas, whereas people like Trump, um, who are also maybe born with a, with this sort of, uh, other way to look at things, the, the reordering of things it's used. You're right. I can, I remember him when he was standing at the podium there bringing up the bleach and the ultraviolet light. And he kept looking over to the scientists that were sitting along the wall, the doctor, you know, Fauci and Burks and all the others. He kept, we could do something like that. He looks at them like, cause he doesn't know he's not, he knows he's not a scientist, but he's got a thought and he's thinking, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to do this, but Hey, you guys work on it. And, and it was, after I listened to your podcast, I just, I wondered how many times was a young Einstein uh, told that he was nuts, um, that, uh, that light can't bend that, uh, or, or uh, jobs and Wozniak were thought of as two kooks out in the garage. Um, how, how many, you know, uh, you, the early reviews of Bob Dylan when he first came to New York, some of them were so vicious because they'd never heard anything like this before. Yeah. So people get scared of that. But, but we, I think don't, we need to be, there is something dangerous though about Trump's way of doing this. And yes, we, but that's exactly right. And it's interesting. You bring up Einstein and yes, Einstein was somebody who couldn't help himself, but think differently than others. But there's a story that, is, that many people don't know about. Einstein uh, was also a, a pacifist and, uh, and really worked to, uh, to stop war. And in the 1930s, he was asked by the League of Nations if he would start a dialogue with another great thinker on how to end war. And he chose... Sigmund Freud to have a correspondence with on the question of whether it's possible to end war. And he asked Freud, he said to, he asked Freud to be a partner in this because he was interested in a relatively recent theory that Freud had developed, which is that there are two basic human drives. One is toward integration and love and life, he called it eros, the life drive. And the other is a, a drive to destruction and aggression and, and tearing things apart, which he called the death drive. And Einstein wanted to know whether human beings would be able to overcome their death drive and end war. And this story is, and Freud was, uh, he wasn't, optimistic. He wasn't pessimistic, but he wasn't optimistic. He believed these two forces were very evenly matched. But what I've learned as a, as a clinician over these years, and um, I've worked a lot with people who were traumatized, a lot with people who were suicidal, a lot of people who were seriously troubled. But what I have found, and all kinds of people, but what I have found is that Freud's view about the life drive and the death drive is true in individuals, except that some people have extraordinary amounts of life drive, of loving capacity, and their aim 
is to make a better world. And their aim is to bring people together in equality and justice. And some people have got an extraordinary load of death drive. And their basic motive in the world is to benefit from destruction, to turn the, the death inside them out into the world, and they just get pleasure in destruction. And so the issue isn't how you think, but what you do with how you think. And so you have Bob Dylan, who uh, who was a fighter and is a fighter for justice, and his poetry brings enormous different kinds of people and thoughts together, and he never ends his curiosity to feel connected to different kinds of people in the world. And you have Einstein, who worked equally hard as he did on his physics on trying to end war. And then you have people like uh, Hitler or Stalin or uh, Jim Jones, um, or you also have somebody like Donald Trump, who is uh, whose mind works faster than anybody else's, and who then uses his intelligence and his freedom of thought as, and uses the energy of aggression and hatred to mobilize that. And he doesn't do it to bring people together in justice and love. He does that to divide people in aggression and chaos for his own power. What was the Trump that we saw getting off the helicopter there last uh, Saturday night when he came back from Tulsa? His tie undone, his um, his whole demeanor, he looked awful. Um, I don't know if you saw any video or a picture of that, but um, he it, it was a Trump we hadn't seen. And um, I didn't know whether or not to feel victorious <laughs> because he had been defeated by um, his own people in Oklahoma who weighed the choice between going to his rally or possibly getting sick and dying. And they chose life over Trump or <clears throat> um, um, should I have, should I be and all of us be extremely worried with that look on his face because um, he had been brought down, very publicly humiliated. Um, and what what reign of terror are we going to have to suffer through as a result uh, of this? And, and it makes me wonder about these these next six months. Um, uh, should it get worse for him? Should he lose? Um, he's already prepping everybody for to believe that it was rigged. If he's going to lose, it's the election is going to be stolen from them, et cetera, et cetera. What, what's the, what are the warning signs here uh, in terms of his um, ability to use? And I have felt this too for some time, this, this sort of too easy to just say he's a narcissist or he's a sociopath, or in, in this case, you know, the, the psychotic behavior that is used in a very negative, harmful way. But, but he, um, but these are, it's almost like a skill set with him um, as opposed to a mental illness. So I don't, I don't know, but I, I was a little freaked out looking at that footage of him getting off the helicopter 
and, and, and a bit of a mess. And if you blow up the photograph of him on the, on the, uh, the lawn of the white house there, he clearly, before he has left the helicopter, um, either applied it to himself or had somebody do it quickly put some makeup on his face to cover the, whatever he's trying to, you know, cover up, trying to bring himself back to life. But they did a a pretty bad job of it because on his white collar of his open shirt are the makeup stains that you can see if you blow the picture up. And I thought, wow, man, what do we, I can't wait to talk to Steve about this. (laughs) Well, if I would, if if I'm going to imagine what happened between the speech in Tulsa and getting out of the helicopter. I, I listened to that speech and I listened to the whole speech and he gave, I have to say, if you listen to it from beginning to end, he gave an extraordinary performance. He gave a Trump level performance. I, I agree. It was, it was, I thought, wow, he's just walked out. He sees that it's two thirds empty and doesn't show it on his face, his acting ability or whatever this is. He, he went right at it. Like, like there was nothing wrong. He did that totally. And he gave one of the great speeches and he was a, he was, you know, PT Barnum. He was so entertaining and so good at ridiculing. And he knew exactly every single uh, dog whistle to throw out every, every, every uh, seduction to racism and hatred. But you could, but my idea of it is that all the while he's thinking, who am I going to destroy who, who didn't see this coming and who put me out here to embarrass me? And I believe that what you saw in, uh, of, what, of Trump walking off the helicopter was the exhausted Trump after eating alive everybody on his staff that he saw after he left the podium to that moment and terrifying them to make sure that nothing like that happens again. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that would be my thought. And I, I think that he, he is so good at, at terrifying people and making them make his vision of things a reality that if somebody falls short, they are going to be uh, crucified for doing it. And they all know it. Hmm. So, and we haven't, as, as we record this, uh, we haven't seen the crucifixion yet, but. It's probably coming. Um, what about the next six months? How do we, uh, how how do we deal with this? Because I'm guessing he's going to have to find ways. He's going to become more and more unglued. So, what do what do we? Well, I don't think that he gets unglued. I think that he uh, organizes his strategy, and it's ruthless. I think we have to be careful about thinking that he's going to go crazy. I, I originally was hoping that he, that the, because the, you know, as a psychoanalyst, I know that the underside of narcissism is paranoia. When the narcissism's world begins to get threadbare, they have to believe that somebody's doing it to them. But Trump has become a master at, sh- at making sure that his narcissistic world is guaranteed by everybody around him, and he will always find somebody to blame, and then everybody now makes sure that those people he blames are blamed, that you know whoever created the Russia 
story is got to be investigated and maybe go to jail. Whoever defended him it has to come out of jail. Um, so the question is not, what is he going to do when he's unglued? The question is really strategic. What is he going to do to uh, deal with the fact that if this is a fair election, he will lose? And so there are strategies that he's going to put in place. There's plan A, which is to win the election. Plan B, if it looks like he's not going to win the election, is to destroy the democratic process. Plan C will be to, uh, to cancel the election and maybe all elections. I, I mean, the, the truth is that Trump has got immunity to prosecution while he's president. And they're working very hard to fire anybody who might um, prosecute Trump uh, after he's no longer president. But my suspicion is that Trump will not make himself vulnerable ever to prosecution by losing the immunity of the presidents. Which mean he, means he has no intention of leaving. That's right. So what we need to do in the next six months is to counter his plans B and C. So there's plan A, which is the election itself, and we have to work very hard to make sure that he loses by a super landslide, because as you have put it many times, you know, just uh, Joe Biden winning by a landslide is not good enough, given the Electoral College and given the, the Republicans gerrymandering and uh, canceling uh, voter by mail, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to win by a huge landslide. That's plan A. Plan B, we have to make sure that uh, all the votes are counted and uh, however we need to do that. And plan C, we have to anticipate what he's, what national emergency he's going to call if he's in danger of losing the election, who in, uh, in, in government and, and, uh, and various agencies, whether it's intelligence agencies, the Justice Department, the police forces, the military, the na National Guard, who might he call on and how are we going to anticipate that so that he doesn't steal our democracy, which is equally as possible as him stealing the election. You mentioned in this episode of Madness uh, that liberals share a certain responsibility here in, in what we're facing down. And in terms of how, again, as you, as you bring up this, this intersection between capitalism and psychology, that um, a lot of liberals know, uh, especially white people, uh, know that they don't um, they don't have to live the life of black and brown people. And so, therefore, um, whether you understand the privilege of that or not, um, you do know, well, you, I'll just let you explain it because bring up Freud's uh, death wish, this sort of, um, uh, and I know, I don't know if I've heard you say this before or you said this in the, in the podcast, but it's like, um, a lot of white people will behave as if, you know, we're immortal. 
uh, that <laughs> life is just going to keep going on like this and blah, blah, blah. But, but, uh, but when when black and brown people are interviewed and and discuss what their hopes and dreams are, um, they don't have any any belief in the fact that they are somehow invincible and immortal here on earth, and uh, and they are well aware of the danger that they're in just by the means of the skin that they're in, and. Um, Maybe just explain that a, a little bit because I th- I found that that discussion that part of this podcast really interesting in terms of of the racial element of this and the yeah. and and what gets in the way of liberals like you know I've said you've heard me say this many times the majority of the people in this country take the liberal position on just about every political issue and yet um, conservatives we'll call them uh, control. Uh, the White House, the Senate, the Supreme Court, most of the governorships, most of the state houses, um, they, 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 and of course the economy and everything else, they have such a grip on this, and yet they are the minority. Conservative right-wing people are not the majority of this country. How is it that liberals have fucked this up so bad <laughs> over the years when yeah. the people themselves have said, we want what you tell us we should have Medicare for all. We want, we want a clean and we want a good environment. We want this, we want, and yet they don't get it. They don't, they want, the majority want a, a minimum wage. That's a living wage. And, and yet we can't bring it to them because we can't get our people elected. And, um, and while you, yes, you know, I've said this about Biden, he'll get more popular votes than Hillary got and yet could still lose. And, and it's like, we're the only group of people that could actually win an election and, and, but lose it at the same time. Well, yeah, the, the, the theme of the podcast is actually not, it doesn't, I don't focus protect primarily on, on Trump's character. I focus on our vulnerability to Trump's character and our vulnerability to Trump's character. I I'm, I'm arguing uh, is because we have, we uh, mostly white people, um, but not only, uh, but we have accepted the neoliberal value system that Reagan presented to us. And we have accepted the capitalist value system that neoliberalism uh, magnifies, which is that we will find a we will find an economic or a product or a consumer solution to all of our problems. Ultimately that means that we will not have to face death and loss and the limitation of our lives. And uh, the the I call the I call COVID uh, the the I, I titled the podcast The Mask of the Black Death, and I use Pose The Mask of the Red Death to talk about the reaction to this plague in the 19th century that Poe describes, where people, where people in power um, deny death completely, lock themselves up in a, ha- in a castle, put walls around the castle and believe that they will be immortal and that death will never enter. And then death seeps in, they all panic and they all die of fright. And I make the case that that describes Republicans and Democrats, that Republicans 
uh, believe that if they lock themselves up in a castle, the country, the White House, gated communities, they will be immortal and that they are immortal and that Trump will lead them to immortality. And so they don't wear masks. They parade in packs with guns and they believe that they can shoot COVID and that it's all a fraud. Democrats, and this is to your point about why Democrats lose, Democrats have bought the same idea that consumerist America, that neoliberal America uh, is, a, is, a, is a good, will save them. But, and so they don't worry about, they, they try to deal with their fear of death in a sort of similar way. But what ends up happening to Democrats is that they're scared all the time. And so they don't react to COVID like it's um, uh, a hoax. They react to COVID like it's death itself and that it will seep in the doors and the walls on the mail. It'll seep in on packages. But the, but the interesting part about all of this, and this is what makes it relevant to the uh, the protests today, the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I quote James Baldwin when he says, white people um, are afraid of black people because white people don't believe in death and black people, the color of their skin threatens them, threatens their fantasy of immortality, that they see death when they see black people. And I think you can see that both with the Republicans walking in the streets with guns uh, to the protests, but you can also see it in the liberals holing up in their houses, being afraid of mail, packages, uh, looters, any, uh, basically essential workers who they're afraid are going to infect them. There's a, there's a, a, a covert racism that is true in, but manifests itself in different ways. But liberals, are you know claim to be allies, but on a psychological level have to contend with our fear of mortality and how that enacts itself in racist ways in our society. So that you know, so I I think about. Baldwin, you know, Baldwin went into exile in France. I, I've been reading a lot of Baldwin lately since I'm in France. Um, and he writes um, that he fled New York because of the liberals, because the liberals just did not understand uh, the black experience, but they didn't understand their part in the black experience. They didn't understand any of the issues, economic, and you know, they just wanted international brotherhood, and they thought that being liberal would solve all the problems. And so he fled, he, he just could not stand it. And you know, it's like Martin Luther King saying that um, moderates are, are the road to hell in a sense, you know, that moderates are a huge part of the problem because they always want uh, black people to calm down and wait and you know, follow the law, et cetera, et cetera. And so liberals, we, and, you know, I, 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 I'm going to include myself in the large, even though I consider myself a little bit more radical than liberal, I still think that I was raised with a kind of a liberal mindset that somehow we're the good ones. And, uh, 
Why is everybody mad at me? <laughs> um, when in fact, we have to do such a thoroughgoing reassessment of history, of economics, and of race, and I mean, and the essential racial issues in America, which have to do with black America and indigenous America. Um, I, I've been looking at the statistics and uh, black Americans are dying uh, of COVID at, you know, two and a half times the rate of white Americans and indigenous Americans are dying at like double the rate of black Americans. It's, it's, um, there's so much that we have to understand. So liberals are always fighting for, you know, or always saying we want Medicare for all. But in terms of actually going down into the streets and saying, I am not leaving the streets until this changes. I am not leaving the streets until there is health care and housing and employment and distribution of wealth. I am not leaving the streets until that happens. You know, we have instead holed up in our homes and, uh, you know, called it self-isolation or, or, or curfew. Mm. And the banging of the pots and the pans and the whistling at seven o'clock every night. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm starting to, it, it, I've had my own progression of thought from the early days of this when literally, you know, there were thousands of people, it seemed every day that were dying. Um, but, but it's still going on, not as, not as large, but it's, it's a little weird. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm talking to different people around New York in different neighborhoods, you know, friends, depending on the neighborhood, it's either completely died off now or, or it's still going on. And it seemed like the, the, the nicer the neighborhood, the, the more it was still going on, the, mm. some, some, some sort of primal scream that was really more, it really feels more and more like, Look, let me put it this way. It's 155 years since the end of the Civil War this year. Um, there's no way that that black Americans um, could still be on the, with Native Americans, on the lowest rung of the economic ladder without the help of not just racist redneck, you know, Bull Connor types with their biting dogs and fire hoses and, and lynchings and everything else. I think it's been assisted by liberal white people um, who don't have a knee to the neck of black America, but have a, just kind of a soft velvet glove around the throat. Yeah. And, and, and they're not, they're not squeezing too tightly because they're good people, <laughs> right. but, but you know what? You could still be choked to death by just a little bit of the velvet glove squeezing the throat gently yeah. though, gently with humanity. Um, I just, well, I don't know. It's just, it, it just, unless all of us, all of us who are white acknowledge that and how we've benefited from this system. Um, and I think all praise to our younger people, teenagers, young adults who are out in the streets who are risking themselves uh, to do this. Uh, Cause I think these kids, if I can call them kids, um, they, they're, they're fed up and they're done with it. And, and you point out in this podcast that black and brown people are so fed up They They've been told for, and they have tried for so long. They understand that white people are afraid of them. And so they're always trying to, I mean, Obama talked about this in his, in his autobiography of, uh, before he became president, 
how he was, he was always aware when he walked into the room that he might be the only black person there. And he had to work overtime to, to calm the white people down because they, he saw the fear and, and he just took that to such an extreme to where when he became president, instead of just going for it, he wanted to get along with the Republicans. He wanted to break bread. He wanted to kumbaya. And they didn't want any of that. They wanted, they wanted the knee to his neck and did everything they could to, to stop him. And yet he still, to this day, he still seems like, you know, maybe I just, I wish he were something that he just can't be, but, um, but it's, but it's clear if you look all around the country that first of all, this thing is being led by black and brown Americans and young white people, uh, uh, have joined in, uh, in very significant numbers. Does that give you some hope or is this? Uh... Yes. I know that I, I, I sound uh, a little Freudian in this way when, you know, that Freud could not help but sound pessimistic, even though I, he always tried to find something optimistic, even when he wrote Civilization and His Discontents. I believe that we are in, we are facing a showdown that the next six months are the showdown for American democracy. And I believe very strongly that if our democracy is going to be saved, it is because it will be because of the mobilization by black and brown and indigenous people and young people from every background in the streets uh, that's going on right now. Because, because they, everybody is, is fed up and um, fed up with dying. And it's the black and the brown and the indigenous people who have been dying. And uh, meanwhile, the, the young uh, progressive kids who were mobilized by Bernie and educated by the progressive movements and are, and somehow seem to me to be a free Maybe it's because uh, their position in society is so tenuous and they have been so screwed uh, by debt um, and by having the future of the planet taken away from them that they don't even have the possibility, they they don't have the interest because they don't believe in playing the game because the game has uh, taken away their hope. So if they're going to have hope, they're going to have to actually believe in completely alternative values. And that is the hope. This, there is an enormous amount of energy unleashed by what has happened because of uh, COVID and global warming. Be, what has happened in terms of the economy, people dying, and the, and the earth, um, uh, dis, the human beings uh, destroying the planet and its future. And for the last three months, there has been a kind of reckoning in the world. There's been a reckoning in terms of uh, capitalism uh, destroying what it would take to protect ourselves from COVID. There has been a reckoning in that we have this level of peacefulness and quiet in the skies and on the streets, and uh, the air is getting better, and birds are singing, and the 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 change that 
with the uh, with the with, with the knee off the neck of the earth temporarily, um, what's possible and what and how 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 near to death the earth is. So we have people who have said who are saying uh, enough of racism, enough of capitalism, enough of destroying the earth for the for the sake of this endless greed of. Uh, white people in power and corporations and something's got to change. And so um, the, this, these next months are going to be the showdown between the entrenched powers who uh, are very armed and the, and, and the other powers, the powers for, uh, for justice and righteousness um, who are not armed but are willing to face COVID and violence to change the world for the better. There was a disturbing article the other day. I don't know if I read it. It was in the Wall Street Journal or wherever, but basically it said that Wall Street, corporate America, has realized that, um, well, they don't want to go down the drain with Trump. And, um, they got their tax break. They got, you know, he's been good for them, but, but he's very bad for business now. And this article talked about the moneyed interest, capitalism, getting behind Joe Biden, getting behind the Democrats, because that's where the powers is going to be now. And, and of course they have to, they have to whip the Democrats and Biden into shape because they, they just can't have any Biden. They can't have any Democrat in there. They've got a, They've got to still be in charge because they see the, I think, the potential of, of capitalism essentially failing. A whole younger generation now has been raised to all the polls show when they ask people under the age of 35, um, do you prefer capitalism or socialism? And, and the, at least a plurality, if not a majority, now all say, uh, well, they prefer socialism. They hate capitalism. Yeah. And um, that's got to be very scary to, to those in power. Um, because if we maintain the democracy, uh, even though there are now 20, almost 20 million millionaires in this country, um, that they, that's still just 20 million out of 330 million, they know the number game. So what do you, I mean, I'm just curious, have you put any thought into this in terms of, of how people should organize and strategize realizing that the people that run the show, the people that have got the bucks, they're not stupid. They didn't get there because they were idiots. Um, and they have no intention of giving up power. And, and they'll cut Trump uh, loose as, as fast, as fast as needs, it needs to be because they, they have got to hold the power. Um, I'm just curious if you've put any thought into this and, and if you have any advice in terms of, of as we proceed, hopefully, toward a better day, um, as we protest, as we vote, as we organize politically within our groups, in our neighborhoods, whatever, um, that, that we understand that, that the enemy uh, has, has, in a sense, joined us. And if you don't believe that, you're in France, but every single TV commercial here, every corporation has, is quoting James Baldwin. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yeah. freaky that, that they, uh, they all wear black lives matter, uh, 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 
insignias. They, they put it on their websites. I'm talking about places like Procter and Gamble, you know, I'm talking about, I mean, and they've, and they make these beautiful commercials about not just, can't we all get along stuff, but like, you know, this has to change and, uh, and we have to be the change. Yeah. But I don't think that the people on the street, the young people, the black people, the people of color are really about to uh, be hoodwinked by corporate America and Wall Street again. I think that we need to be thinking of ourselves not as Democrats and certainly not as Republicans, but as the opposition. And we, as the opposition, have to consolidate our power and be wooed by the Democrats. But we have to stay independent of the Democrats. And I'm not talking about being an independent party. We should register Democrats so that we move the Democratic Party as far to the left as we can. But we have to think of ourselves as an opposition, an organized, coherent opposition, so that will still be the opposition after Biden is in, is in, in the White House. And that he will still have to woo us and that we are not going to be fooled again and that we have got our views and we understand that that accepting the bill of goods that uh, neoliberal liberalism has given us has just made every american below the millionaire class in debt in america you either are very very comfortable or you're desperate and 50% of the country is desperate and more, a higher percentage of young people are desperate and certainly people of color and black people and indigenous people. So our job is to consolidate an opposition mentality that has got a socialist ideology, that has a Medicare for all uh, platform, that it has a Green New Deal platform that cares about what we value because we value the future for young people and for everybody and we value justice. So our job is not to be, not to go, not to, not to base our political activity on relief, but on what we think is right and that we're not going to stop fighting until the country, that arc of justice bends to a decent place to a place that we all were promised and have yet, have yet to see the country deliver. And somebody's listening to this right now in Topeka or Boise uh, or Sioux Falls, and they're like, yes, uh, the opposition, that is exactly what I am. I am part of the opposition, but I live in Sioux Falls. So, I mean, what do we, what do you say to people um, who are listening to this right now and who are um, maybe even inspired to, and when this is over, to um, to start to think about what does that mean? What does that mean if I wherever I live in this country? Um, how 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 do I and my friends and others become this opposition? Not not just in theory, but in in actuality. Um, and and I'm 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 just I don't, I don't know if you have an answer for this. I just but I I really am feeling that. You know the people that are listening to this right now are very much aligned, probably, with this thought of, of being part of the opposition, or maybe and already are. They already are in the streets, but a lot of people aren't. A lot of people can't. Um, uh, we're living in, in a fairly dark time. 
dark as you as you point out in this podcast uh, of yours, uh, the, the you know there are there are a number of viruses that we're battling, and there's a super as you call him a super spreader. <laughs> At 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but it's, but that's really the truth. And, um, the spewing of hate, uh, of racism, uh, uh, the encouragement of violence, uh, is, um, frightening to a lot of people. But I think together, if we all had this sense that we were the opposition, the opposition, mm-hmm. yes. then, then what in my mind? Well, then we win. Then we save the democracy. And, and, and as people have heard me say many times on this podcast, that it didn't start with Trump. He didn't just fall out of the sky. He's only the, this, this certain end result where we're at now of all these years that you talk about since Reagan. And even before that, of, you know, hundreds of years of, of racism and, and uh, violence against people of color. What do you say to that? What do you say to that person listening to this right now and feeling somewhat alone and and wanting to be part of that opposition? What I say, and maybe it's it's it, my position is an interesting one, seeing what's going on in America from overseas, and I I I I, I observe so much of what's going on in America, and uh, maybe. I have a different perspective, but the perspective that I have from here is that these marches are going on all over the country, that there are marches, small marches and big marches in towns all over the country. And I, I actually spoke to my, my daughter about this question because she lives in a small town in northern Massachusetts, and there have been marches in her town and in the next town and then the next town over. And, um, and they're organized. She said it was a, a, a kind of a, a, a logical progression from the isolation of COVID that people started uh, joining, communicating in unusual ways with local people, like to make masks or to, uh, to, to visit one another, make sure people had their needs taken care of, that there was small scale organizing going on and now it's turned into marches in the town square and at the marches people are not just paying lip service to the ideas of the protests but are like uh defund the police but are talking about running for the local boards and the local community leadership to be able to take control of how the town money is spent. And so uh, my recommendation is that the opposition find each other in marches online and organize small groups and take over the fabric of America as an opposition, because that does two things. First of all, it makes change. But second of all, it restores the values of people seeing each other as fellow human beings who we want to care about and whose lives we want to make better rather than, uh, than, than uh, likes on social media to promote a fantasy of fame. Really, our job is, and it would be a wonderfully ironic result uh, in the face of isolation, that 
people come out of their isolation and they appreciate the change in the climate from our having having less destructive impulses and are giving up uh, all that destroys the environment or caring for the environment, but more so caring for our neighbors in our community and taking our views, the views that we that the majority of Americans hold and implementing them on behalf of one another in our in our town. Mm. Wow, that is true. I, I get so much mail from people in small towns and they have they've been having demonstrations. Maybe it's 50 people, maybe it's a hundred. In the, the small town where I live in northern Michigan, there's like 15,000 year-round residents there uh, in the town. Uh, the, the, the first, they had a Black Lives, I mean, there's very few black people live in northern Michigan. They had a Black Lives Matter rally attended mostly by white people, but there were 2,000 people that showed up in a, wow. in a and, and, and I mean, they came from elsewhere around northern Michigan, but, but in, within the city limits, there's only a population of 15,000 and there were 2,000 people there. It was like, Wow. Um, yeah, and and don't you think that's really where the opposition is going to come from? Yes, I think it is, and I think it's going to be it's going to going to be people that haven't been involved before. Um, in, in in fact, I think we need that. I think we need new blood. I think we need a fresh. Uh, we need some. We need some new voices, new people, people who have say, "Well, you know, I don't. I've never been involved, or you know, I'm not like these other people. They've been they've been in this group for 20 years." It's we're not, okay. Yes, but we didn't succeed so far. You know, the the everything since Reagan got elected has been to to beat us into a worse place. So, uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't been involved, we need you. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Need you badly. Uh, we need your ideas and and your opposition. I just think I think that's so critical. And I know we start talking about psychology and the intersection with capitalism, but this is, I mean, this is what's so great about your podcast is that you, you actually have real ideas for people to, this isn't just theory. We're not just yakking about, you know, some, some thinking that's up there somewhere in the clouds that, you know, that, that, that you would take your training, your years of experience of doing this and combine it with your, your, your political history and, and, and your economic um, analysis of the economic system that we have that does so much harm and damage to ourselves and to the world. Uh, I think it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very powerful thing to listen to Steve. And uh, you know, I mean, I personally have really enjoyed it and, um, and I want people to, to listen uh, to this too. Uh, it's, it's, it's an irregular, you don't come out like once a week or Monday, Wednesday, Friday or anything like that. It's, it's, it's the, it's an occasional podcast that you, that you post. But, um, you know, you mentioned James Baldwin being in exile in France and that you are in France now. Uh, Are, are you in exile? Are, are, what is, what are you doing there? What is, (laughs) (laughs) well, what, what happened is this when Trump got elected and what, what, propelled him into office, um, scared me. And I thought that it just wouldn't be a bad thing to have an exit strategy if I needed one. I also have um, a a family, my my son 
and my grandson and my my daughter-in-law live in Berlin. So uh, being in in Europe is you know brings me closer to a, a part of my very small family. My family is small uh, because we're descended from Holocaust survivors, and my parents were Holocaust survivors, and that doesn't make for a, a population explosion. Um, so my son is here, so I want to be able to visit him. So I wanted an exit strategy from America, and also I thought of of France. Um, and uh, But the reason I came now uh, was because I, I saw what was about to happen in New York City. It was really clear, even though the city government was in denial of it, it was very clear to me and to you <laughs> what was about to happen in New York. And I basically got on, my, we, we got on the last plane to uh, France and I had already set up my Maybe residency the here. The last plane before the lockdown here. The last plane before France lockdown. I see. Flights um, to Bordeaux and uh, which is near where we are. Um, and then I was, we were in quarantine here, um, for three months. Um, so, and so we couldn't move. So it, it was a kind of an exile. Um, I chose to leave. I couldn't go back. Um, but I have to say that this gives me such a perspective, the healthcare. I, I don't, I'm not part of the French healthcare, but it is so inexpensive that any care that I need here is, you know, so much less than my copay in America. And this is without insurance. Um, you mean when you have to pay for something because you're uh, not French and you go to, to get seek some medical help? Yeah. You're, <laughs> and you so you have to pay. You're paying. You're paying less than you'd be paying with insurance here, less than the copay here. Yeah, or the equivalent. It's, I mean, for a doctor, but the doctor sees you for an hour. Um, it's 25 euros. It's a hospital visit with an ultrasound or whatever is about 75 euros, including radiology. And the euro is, a, what is that now? Almost equal yeah. to a dollar? Or? It's, about, it's about 10%. It's so uh, 100 euros is $110. All right. So, be, so you're saying that you're getting an ultrasound in the hospital for 75 bucks. And a doctor's yep. visit, which lasts an hour, not yep. three and a half minutes, yep. is about twenty-five bucks. That's right. And and when they shut down the country for three months here, they guaranteed everybody's wages, eighty uh, percent, some more. Um, they canceled rent and mortgage payments. Canceled them during the lockdown, um, and. As a result, when things have started to open up, the, the restaurants haven't gone out of business. In fact, three new ones have opened in the area. Um, people have not lost their jobs for the most part. I mean, there are some industries, international industries, where it may be harder. But in this part of France, the local people are, um, are working, uh, have gotten through it. The cases have dropped, I mean, uh, so that they don't consider the, this to be an emergency anymore at all. Um, and it's, and uh, the workers have a say 
pretty much in everything. Um, I mean, the, there was a the yellow vest. There was a, a, a cartoon in uh, I think it was Liberation, um, where the yellow vest wanted the government to open up the country so that the yellow vest could shut it down. <laughs> right, because <laughs> workers here have a major say in yeah. what's going on, and they're organized. Yeah, and they make a living wage, and they make a living wage. Yes. Well, the the yellow vests were uh, protesting, and rightly so, a, a, a shift in France toward neoliberalism under Macron, and uh, so, and but they were hurt. They they, they have a tradition of active and meaningful protest and they made changes and uh, protected the working uh, uh, their vo- their voices were heard and yes. the politicians had to follow what the people were demanding they did that is exactly right because you know macron's idea for uh, contri- you know for cli- con- for uh, being responsible to the climate was to raise the price of gasoline and the Yelovas said, um, this disproportionately hurts working people who, you know, because it's a bigger percentage of our wages than wealthy people. This is not the way to finance uh, and, uh, the response to the climate emergency because, you know, you, want, you, you have the, the luxury of worrying about the end of the world. We have to worry about the end of the month. So let's find another way. And they did. Wow. And I just want to repeat that $25 doctor visit. Those are the rates for foreigners. That's <laughs> right. The, that's the foreign rate. 20- yes. The, the rate for, for local people, for French people and foreigners who've been here longer than I have is zero. It's free. It's completely free. Yeah. Completely free. Yeah. 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 Nobody went broke. Nobody, re- and this is why the um, pandemic was brought under control in France, because you don't have people avoiding uh, doctors and hospitals because they can't afford it. Right. Um, that's one of the reasons. I mean, France had its problems, and th- there were some serious problems in the beginning. And, you know, th- those are to be criticized by the opposition. But uh, they're, they're, they're miles ahead, which is why Europe the 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 number is dropping the number of deaths the number of cases the number of hospitalizations is dropping 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 but not in america we're near the end of this episode i'm just wondering um before we close um if there's anything else that you'd like to add um maybe something i i forgot to bring up or didn't cover here um that you'd like to just in terms of your own thinking in the past uh, few weeks um that you know um, that you'd like to say to your fellow Americans, uh, of course, there are people all over the world listening to this podcast, but to specifically uh, to our fellow Americans um, uh, who want to come out on the other end of what we're living through, whether it be COVID or Trump or uh, capitalism or whatever, um, you know, just in these final minutes here, just I'd like to just hear your thoughts. Well, I would say, I think we have to say something about looting and violence. Yes. I think we have to talk about that. Um, the real, uh, the real looting that's been going on. Well, we have to talk about both, both lootings, right? There is the looting of the, of the black community and the poor 
community. There's been the corporate looting that has destroyed neighborhoods and destroyed and boarded up storefronts. So there's that looting. But I want to talk about the, the, the rage that has been building up on the part of the protesters as well. And now it's coming out, I'm afraid, in, as the summer gets hotter, with fireworks and there's violence. There's a hot summer and there's rage and there's justified rage and there's, um, and, and there's a, a kind of a, of an, a cauldron that we're living with. And the and liberals tend to be terrified of the way things get communicated. That liberals and you know I've been a couples therapist among other things. And when couples fight, they don't talk about the issues. They talk about the way you said it. They talk about that you you did this on my birthday or you weren't respectful in the way you said that to avoid the issues. And liberals will talk about the way that. Black people are fighting the, the racism and fighting for justice. And that is a distraction, but because violence is one of the expressions, but the underlying issue is injustice and racism and the, and, and the, the history of, of economic oppression of certain groups, particularly black and indigenous people. So those are the issues. But there's an issue, there's a major question here, is what are we going to do with our rage? And how are we going to guide and funnel the rage? And I'm not going to say, oh, everybody's got to be, you know, act in nonviolent ways because you don't want to offend anybody. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that this, we have to look at this as a huge resource. This level of rate, look, there would be all of the laws that are being changed around the country. They did not come from quiet marches. They came because everybody gets that the rage is bubbling over. And rage is a fuel. And it can fuel social transformation if we know how to use it and we we, we improve the machine that is propelled, the opposition machine that is propelled by that rage. And we have to train ourselves and we have to use it and we have to be out there all the time. Or we can allow ourselves to uh, be manipulated by forces in society that want to see that rage destroy itself. And, we, and, and especially in a hot summer, then we have a terrified populace. Martin Luther King said that his protests, including you know, the violence that erupted at his protests, even though he, he and, and, and the marchers were nonviolent, they understood the importance of the violence that was uh, the response, because he said it would raise the conscience of the community. And so our job is never to lose sight, no matter how enraged we are, no matter how our, our no matter, no matter how much we want to tear up the streets, we have to always remember that we have to funnel our rage as fuel to change the government, 
to change what's going on in this country, to 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 form and and uh, and and institute and force an opposition, we actually need to take this rage and create a revolution. Steve, you have to come back um, on because uh, I I love the way you look at these things. And uh, as we go through these next months, um, it'd be wonderful to have you back on as a guest. And I encourage everybody to listen to your podcast. Uh, There's only six episodes so far, so you can start at the beginning. But when you get to this one we've been talking about today, number six, and the title is uh, The Mask of, well, the title is The Mask of the Black Death, right? Yes, uh, but, but the mask of the Black Death, racism in the time of Trump. Racism in the time of Trump. Uh, and the title is a play off the title of the Edgar Allan Poe short story, The Mask of the Red Death, which you described, you described earlier, but you really do such a great um, description of Poe's. Uh, and he wrote this in the 1840s, so this is, he had no idea that there'd be a Trump Um but it's a, it's a powerful podcast. I encourage you. I'll, I'll have a link to this episode right here on my podcast page, wherever you're listening to it, whatever platform you're listening to it. Uh, uh, check that out and, um, and check out and subscribe and follow uh, Steve's uh, podcast. It's called Madness. Uh, Dr. Steven Reisner um, has been our guest um, you will come back, right? Um, we uh, really appreciate. Yes, that. I'd be happy to. This this has been uh, this has been a sort of a profound pleasure because talking to you, I I feel even though you sometimes speak without hope, I, it makes me feel hopeful and it makes me think uh, differently. It it opens my thinking, so it's it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. And uh, and um, I'm I'm going to go <laughs> step out of our podcast. Uh, studio here. Um, and uh, I think I, my hope is somewhere out in the hallway. Um, so I'm going to go find it right now. But uh, no, I mean, seriously, everybody, you know, um, I'm just being honest. And I know you, all of you out there have been feeling uh, similar thoughts. Uh, being locked inside <laughs> for so long has not helped. I really think I've got to, I've got to just uh, throw caution to the wind here and um, uh, go outside um, uh, and, uh, be around some people with proper distancing and a face mask and, uh, and a little bottle of Purell with me. Is this the way we're going to have to live our lives? Um, but, uh, um, thank you, Steve Reisner. Uh, thank you everybody listening to this. Uh, thank you to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, uh, to our sound engineer and editor, Nick Quaz, and we will talk to you again in uh, in a few days. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Be well. Mm-hmm.